0: Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort.
1: You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty, and you can think of me as your friendly guide to the English language. We talk about writing, history, rules, and cool stuff. And today we have cool stuff and a little bit of rules because I'm here with Joshua Esso, who is a fiction editor I have known for probably, I don't know, a decade. And we're going to talk about uh, mood and atmosphere and some of the rules as they are for writing fiction. Joshua, thank you so much for being here with me today.
0: Yeah, thank you for having me. It's great to be back.
1: Yeah, I think it's been a couple of years since we talked um, when you had your last set of books out. And now you have a new set of books. Why don't you tell everyone about these um, two new books that we're going to talk about?
0: Yeah, so the two new books, or if you were part of the Kickstarter, the single new special edition book is uh, a flip book where you have on one side you have world building, and on the other side you have mood and atmosphere. And then when I release them wide, uh, they'll be two separate books. So world building, I mean, as the title suggests, it's about creating worlds. Um, Mood and atmosphere is is a little bit more of a difficult and more advanced topic where we're talking about how to imbue your book with different kinds of emotions. I call it um, emotionality. Your combined Mood, which is um, how you make your readers feel, and uh, through your characters primarily, but there's a lot of different ways that you can evoke mood, and that's what the book goes into. And atmosphere, which is a subset of mood, but atmosphere is created primarily through your setting, which you can see why it pairs well with world building.
1: Yeah. And let's, let's actually back up a little bit because I know you, but the listeners may not. So, I mean, why should – I do mean, why they should listen to you when it comes to um, writing fiction. You're, you know, an accomplished editor and talk about, you know, how long you've been doing this and some of the people you've done editing for.
0: Sure. Okay. So, I have been editing since 2010, since shortly after the very first Superstars Writing Seminar. That's just where you and I met. And uh, since then, I have been able to uh, sort of wrangle opportunities for myself to uh, to become known, especially when I was first starting out. It was a big question of like, why would anybody want to come to some new guy for their editing? Like, right, it's
1: something every new editor faces.
0: <laughs> yeah. So um, my idea was to get somebody who was already well known in the field to give me, you know, the, the thumbs up to be like, yeah, this guy is good. This guy is okay to use. So. Um, one of the instructors at Superstars was David Farland, and that's where I, I met him. And so soon after the seminar was over, I went and I took a workshop with him with the goal of editing one of his books. <laughs> so, uh-huh. I mean, why shoot low? <laughs> right. So uh, by the end of the workshop, he I, I managed to convince him to say yes.
1: <laughs> so, Dave was so generous. Can we just stop yeah. for a minute? You and I both adored Dave Farland, and yeah. he recently died, and I know yeah. I was – Crushed, and I, I know you were too. So we yeah. owe so much to Dave for our early um, car- your early career. In my, he encouraged me in in writing too. Is a great man.
0: Oh, that's wonderful. I, I didn't know that uh, he did that for you. That's, that's yeah, really just great. like
1: you. After I went to Superstars, I was like, I need to take a workshop from Dave. So that was yeah. the the next thing I did.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was kind of crushing, um, and, and it's it's taking a while to get over. Um, I'm dedicating uh, the book to him. Yeah, because he was he was at first um, a teacher and then he became my mentor and then we became friends and our conversations and what time we spent together was more often focused on like our our lives rather than writing. Uh, So, yeah, that relationship, you know, went on for a decade and I wish that it could have gone on for another decade.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: yeah. It was, it's been really difficult,
1: but yeah. So yeah. So you dedicated one of the books to him cause he's been such a great guy and so influential.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, um, <laughs> on to more pleasant things, uh, than lost friends. Yeah, so, um, sorry. that's okay. Uh, so David did agree to let me edit one of his books. I edited uh, his book called Nightingale and that went on to win a bunch of awards. And that was such a formative experience. And from that point on, uh, David was um, secure in, in recommending me to other people. And I didn't know about this until years later, but he was talking to me. I'm mean, talking to people about me when they went to his workshops. Oh. Uh, I, yeah, I didn't, he didn't even tell me about that. He was, he was doing that, but Yeah. So that's how I got started. I got started with superstars. I got started with uh, David Farland. Um, And through the course of um, the last decade, I've had the opportunity to work with Pierce Anthony, who was uh, he was like my childhood, like idol of what an author life was like. You know, he's he's literally the person and his writing and his author's notes at the back of his stories was uh, that's why I wanted to become a writer. I was like, this sounds perfect. This sounds great. That's what I want to do. And, you know, that dream got lost along the way. And then uh, back in 2010, it it picked it back up (laughs) (laughs) and decided that's where I was going to go again. So, yeah, I've been doing it for a while and I've worked with an an enormous amount of uh, new writers, uh, self-published writers, uh, writers of the future winners um, as they're getting into their careers and starting their first books. Uh, Mark Leslie Fave, uh, various people in the industry already. It's been It's been a really great, really blessed career that I've been having. I'm extremely grateful and thankful.
1: And this is your full-time thing, right? More than full-time probably.
0: Yeah, yeah. Sometimes I wish there was at least a few more of me so that – one person could deal with this project and this person could deal with that project. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, and that's why it's been two years for you to come up with these next, um, advice books because you've been yeah. busy editing clearly. Yeah. But, um, you know, the first two were on action sequences and sex scenes, which are some mm-hmm. of the hardest things to write. And now, um, you've it sort of, it feels like it's almost more advanced, like mood and atmosphere. Like that, that's yeah. the stuff you add in. Well, you can plan for it, but you can also add it in. Um, yeah. you know, in the editing process. So why don't you talk about, um, you know, what's, well, first, what's the difference between mood and atmosphere?
0: So mood and atmosphere are, like you were just saying, they're, they're more advanced techniques. Uh, don't worry about them being advanced techniques, first of all, is because anytime you write a story, you're going to have an inherent mood to it. Whether or not you're trying to evoke it, it's going to happen. Uh, that's sort of the same thing with a lot of different aspects of writing, like theme, sometimes message, uh, but mood and atmosphere will appear based on what you are, what you what your story is and how you're writing it. So, but let's, like you said, let's define them, Okay. So mood is, mood is the emotional response that the writer wants to evoke in the reader. It's, it's the framework, um, It's the framework of your emotionality, and the emotionality is basically your combination of uh, mood and atmosphere. It's a word that uh, I'm using throughout this book to help define things. It is the emotions fused in your story through your characters as they move through your plot and your conflicts and your various themes. Now, atmosphere is very similar, and it's easy to see why they're confused and used interchangeably a lot. Atmosphere is a subset of mood. But atmosphere is about the setting. Atmosphere is a way to evoke emotion through your setting, whereas mood was a way to evoke emotion through primarily characters. But there's a lot of different ways. Mood, I'm sorry, atmosphere is evoked through your setting uh, and your world building. That's the emotional framework is that um, of a scene that's created through your sensory descriptions, uh, through their, the specific details that you use uh, throughout your settings. So that's that's kind of the difference
1: that we're looking at there. Thanks. One, one, one suggestion you had, one thing I like about the book is that it's filled with really practical tips. I mean, it gets at this high-minded stuff, but it also has great practical tips. And one of your tips is to actually name your setting, give your setting uh, a name. And I thought that was so interesting and helpful. Can you talk more about that?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So. Why I suggest sometimes naming your settings, and I'm not talking like, um, you know, Weathertop, like a a well-known setting that actually like a place that has a name. I'm talking about Bob, you know, (laughs) this is my setting, John. Um, uh, The reason that you want to do that is sometimes when you're trying to create a setting, you're trying to emotionally evoke that setting, trying to make your readers really feel immersed into it. And you're just having a lot of difficulty getting there. Like, you you can't quite sink into it. You can't quite nail the emotion that you want to to have, like, bubbling up out of this thing. So, the suggestion that I have is to treat it like a person. Treat your setting like it's a character in your book. Name him or her, (laughs) you know, like, Rachel. How are you feeling today? (laughs) And figure out like what your setting would be as a person. And once you do that, once you turn that setting into an actual living, breathing being that you can sort of associate with in your head, you'll find it a lot easier to figure out how to evoke emotion out of it for your readers when you start writing it.
1: So can you give an example of how Rachel, as a setting, for example, (laughs) might... Describe how she's feeling in a way that lets you give your setting a mood?
0: Sure. So, if Rachel were, for example, uh, a foggy forest,
1: uh-huh.
0: um, what kinds of things would Rachel be feeling? What kind of things would she want? What goals would she have? And I would think that depends on your story, right? If you're writing a horror, then your Misty Forest is going to have a much different feel than if you're writing like a Swords and Sorcery or, you know, sort of a fantastic children's story. Uh, But let's go with horror. (laughs) (laughs) So if you're writing a horror story and you have a Misty Forest, likely you want Rachel to be kind of spooky. You want Rachel to be scary because you want your readers to start feeling the tension of that setting. So if Rachel's goal is to scare the people who walk beside her within her, as the case may be. Uh, then you're going to have Rachel uh, trying to achieve those goals in different ways than you would if you wanted your, your characters and your readers to feel warm and fuzzy. Right? Mm-hmm. So that's like the be- beginnings of how you can start rolling with a uh, setting as a character. You start thinking about who they would be, what they want, um, what they would do to achieve those wants, those goals and then you'll start feeling like, oh, it's coming to life. It, It's—I've mm-hmm. used this technique a couple of times in my own writing when I just I couldn't quite nail it, and I knew that it was there because I could feel it, like in the back of my head. But this helped bring it bring it forth.
1: Great. Um, you know, uh, your work and, and Dave's work too have changed the way I watch movies. You remind you're, you're talking about horror, reminding me of movies. And uh, ah. I one, I love one thing I love is when you have examples. You use movies often instead of books because yeah. I think more people have seen popular movies than have read any popular book. But also, if I haven't it's an hour and a half for me to go watch it as opposed to maybe eight hours for me right. to uh, go read the book and get up to speed. Um, can you talk about, you know, how people, some, some movies that have really good examples of mood and atmosphere, like the examples you've used in your book?
0: The first thing that pops up in my head is Blade Runner. Blade Runner is remarkably both moody and atmospheric. Man, it's good. <laughs> Such a good job. Uh, the, like we were just discussing about Rachel the Misty Forest, Blade Runner's environment, its setting feels like a character in the, in the, in the story. Um, And the reason that I like to mention that the reason that I use a lot of movies uh, in my examples, alongside books and even video games is because we're not talking about just one meeting here. We're talking about telling stories. That's the important thing. So, I mean, if, if you want to write a screenplay or a play or something like that, this also is applicable. It can also still help. So the setting in Blade Runner was always constantly dark and dripping, and you could hear echoes through it. Everything was shiny, and light reflected off of surfaces and, and water all over the place. It was a very um, poignant. It was it was dark. It was, there was a certain aspect of it that was dreary, but at the same time, it had like I was saying, all those reflections, all those sharp points of light, and. It contrasted so dramatically against the darkness behind it. So you can see how that kind of starts tying into the theme of the story as well. Like, it was just, it was brilliant. Such a good setting.
1: <laughs> Another one you used, I think you used Fight Club, but I think you were using mm-hmm. the book instead of the movie in your examples. But it was also yeah. an, just great examples of what you were trying to illustrate.
0: Yeah. Uh, fight club, both the book and the movie are just really, really good. They're a bit different from one another. They're, they're different experiences. Uh, I chose the book because that was my first experience with the story. And I felt like going with another very, uh, well, I guess it's not very popular. In fact, it bombed at the box office. It just became a cult classic afterwards. I
1: didn't know but,
0: that. Yeah. Yeah. It, it did not do well until it went to video and then people started finding it. Huh. So I, I like the book. Um, I feel like it worked better for uh, mood and atmosphere to you and also world building. I think I use it a couple of times in there. Uh, it's just, it's one of my favorites. So <laughs> <laughs> I got to use it. No one has quite, I'm not going to say no one Chuck Palahniuk has such a strong voice and it comes through in all of his writing. And so I felt like, um, so the moon, movie definitely did have a voice. It, it's not nearly as strong as the actual book. So using that as the example was definitely the way to go. Um, so, uh, how did, uh, how did fight club evoke? I would say not so much atmosphere though. That was really there. That was very present. When we think back to where, uh, the narrator or, or Jack, as a lot of people call him it, where Jack was living with Tyler Durden in that old broken down Victorian that was just kind of falling apart where when it started to rain, they had to turn off all the fuses. Otherwise everything would blow up. Right. <laughs> where going down into the basement meant, um, walking through, uh, you know, a couple inches of water where I, trying to clean off was almost like a pointless endeavor because the place was just so dirty. And the fact that the characters didn't care <laughs> that it was dirty, like they, you see it throughout every sequence, but it's never really acknowledged. And I thought that was kind of cool too, because it, it, it sort of sets up the atmosphere of the plays even stronger. But yeah, there are a lot of really atmospheric things in Fight Club. But the mood that uh, that Chuck made us feel as readers it was both uh, it was both hopeful for like a new way of thinking and a new way of life, but also is very, very dreary and almost depressing at the same time. Like it's about characters who are going through. The the very bottom. They're they are just they're down there in the grit. And it, it's just uh if you want to study both mood and atmosphere, primarily mood and voice, Fight Club the book is an excellent place to start. Stephen King is another really good place to start. He's a little bit hit and miss, especially for some people. But um I'd say things like uh The Talisman, Pet Cemetery, uh, Salem's Lot, Carrie. Oh gosh, the mood in Carry. Mm. these are all really really good examples to study if that's if you want to become aware and um, start practicing how to write it in your own stories.
1: For a very limited time, Grammar Girl listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Is it rosettastone.com slash grammar? That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash grammar today. I think another thing that my listeners will be interested in is sort of the mechanics of the writing. You know, we in Fight Club, you talked about um, sort of the type of sentences that he uses and, yeah. and the type of words, that it, specifically getting down to the nitty gritty of just what words and type of sentence you're choosing can, can affect yeah. mood and atmosphere. Can you talk about that a little bit?
0: Yeah. Uh, so word choice is really important when you're – one of the really important – uh, various tools that I talk about in creating mood and atmosphere so by controlling your writing on a line by line level you can either uh, speed it up or slow it down you can choose long sentences or short sentences you can choose a bunch of like sh- um, like a couple word sentences that really make it feel kind of choppy all of these things uh, especially on a subconscious level start making readers feel different ways if you're you're using really long sentences, flowing and um, poetic and beautiful descriptions and beautiful writing, then you're going to have sort of a more flowing, easy uh, type of feeling to you know whatever you know is actually going on in the story. However, that's complementing it. If you're using the shorter sentences and you're using shorter words with less syllables, then you're going to start having a more tense reaction in readers. Uh, They're going to, especially if you use it for like a paragraph, you know, a few sentences in a row where everything is chop, 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 chop. That staccato beat is going to amp up the tension if that's what you have in your scene. And it's interesting to try and pair those uh, against each other too. Like if you have short sentences and you're trying to, and you're, and you're having in your scene, like something more seemingly relaxing and calm, you can sort of belie that calmness with your short sentences. And the same is for the opposite. If you have a tense scene, but you're using long flowing sentences. That can tend to make your, your readers kind of calm down, slow things, and pay more attention to the words. Um, sometimes it's, that's not what you want to do at all. I find uh, whether you want to parallel or if you want to contrast really depends on what's going on in your specific story. Uh, but yeah, it's it's an excellent question because pacing, which is what these kinds of things all lead into. Pacing is very reflective and also um, it's dynamic, but it also sets your mood and atmosphere, uh, especially mood. Atmosphere it works as well because like I said, it's a subset of mood and it depends on how, what kind of setting that you want to have. But yeah, Uh, your word choice, your sentence length, and your sentence length can, you know, flow into your paragraph length and even your chapter length. I mean, think about what if you had a chapter that was just like one sentence long? Mm -hmm. That's a a statement. Uh, What kind of, what kind of mood is that going to evoke? That means like, how are your readers going to feel when they come to the next chapter and it's a sentence long, you know, or even just a couple of paragraphs long or a page long? That is, Definitely, you're making a statement there about how you want them to feel and what you're leading them into. And then uh, the last thing is your emotional beats. And I think I talked about this in action sequences as well. With your emotion beats, your emotional beats, you don't want to generally have the same uh, emotion evoked in your scene over and over and over and over again. That what that'll do is it'll tire your readers out. It could even bore your readers because they they want something to feel less static, less uh, motionless. And if you have, let's say, uh, everything is perfect and happy, and then in the next <laughs> scene, everything's perfect and happy, and then more perfect and happy, and yet again, still perfect and happy, readers are going to be like, okay, so what about the story?
1: Uh-huh.
0: <laughs> what's, what's going on with the story? Can we move forward, please? So interrupting your perfect and happy with, Horrific and terrified, (laughs) Uh so often, is going to be helpful for making your readers feel things. When you are able to contrast emotions, they become more apparent. So if you have perfect and happy and the next chapter is horrific and terrified, those are going to be amplified.
1: (laughs) Mm -hmm. And you kind of want to guide your readers through a series of emotions over a book oftentimes. I mean, there's there's an overarching, like in general, you want the book to make people feel a certain way,
0: Mm -hmm. but...
1: There are also arcs within it, right?
0: Yes, absolutely. And I call that um, the prevailing mood. So the prevailing mood is basically – it's like your central conflict but for mood. So it's the primary mood that you have flowing through the entire story. Now, that doesn't mean that that is the only mood that you're going to try to evoke throughout the story because that would be – I mean that would be problematic. But – You will have other moods flowing in and intertwining with that prevailing mood throughout. Like in a scene where, let's say, we are uh, in a zombie apocalypse. I'm sorry, I keep going back to horror.
1: Okay.
0: (laughs) Let's Let's say we're in a zombie apocalypse. The prevailing mood of a zombie apocalypse story is probably going to be one that's pretty scary. It's probably going to be something that is full of tension. So that doesn't mean that you want to wear your readers out with every scene being full tension because that's just going to be exhausting. They'll stop reading sooner than they would if you didn't give them little breaks in that. So give them those breaks in your tension. throw in a different mood for a different scene. Like uh, the characters have been searching for food cause they're starving and Oh my gosh, they just found a Costco and <laughs> nobody has raided the Costco yet. All the stuff in the Costco is still there. Yay. New home base. Right? So <laughs> that kind of chapter would interrupt the tension and it would give readers a breather and they would Feel like oh awesome everybody's doing well finally I can I can be less tense and, and then you hit them again with tension <laughs> yeah.
1: right the like zombies find a back door <laughs> that's
0: right that's right there's always a back door
1: <laughs> right I love that and speaking of pacing I have to say your book has one of the best timed don't freak out little <laughs> tip boxes that I've ever encountered I'm reading along and you're going through all these things and I'm starting to feel overwhelmed I'm starting to feel freaked out and then there's a little tip box that says pro tip don't don't freak out, and you back up and say how like you don't need to do this all while you're writing your first draft, and you can add yeah. it in later. And it was just it was so perfect. Yeah,
0: <laughs> you have my wife to thank for that. <laughs>
1: Pass along my thanks.
0: I will. Yeah, she um, uh, just a couple of nights ago. Honestly, I think it was like um, five nights ago. <laughs> uh, she wanted to read through it because I finally finished the complete first draft of the book. And this has been such a, this has been such a hard book to write. And so when I finished it, I was like, I didn't feel it right away. Cause I immediately went into editing, but the next day, the relief of stress was very noticeable. <laughs> so when I finished it, I told her and she's like, send it to me. I want to read it. I'm like, are you sure you want to read? It's like, you know, it was like midnight or something like that. It was pretty late. And she goes, yeah, I want to read it right now. I'm like, okay. So I <laughs> sent it to her. And after she read it, she came in here, I'm still editing. It's like, I don't know, one 2 o'clock in the morning. She comes and she sits on the, uh, the, the, uh, the chair over there. And she says, after we've been talking for, you know, a good 15, 20 minutes, she says, but I felt really overwhelmed. And I was like, Oh, okay. And <laughs> she suggested that I address that feeling because she's, and I agree completely. She's not going to be the only one who encounters all these definitions, all these techniques and all these strategies and goes Oh my God, I can't do this. (laughs) This guy's crazy. So I, that's where the don't freak out tip comes from. And basically the don't freak out tip means that you're not going to be able to master all of these things after just reading this book. Like these things take practice. The masters who have, you know, our masters of literature, like, um, like Stephen King, uh, Anne McCaffrey, um, Chuck Palahniuk, uh, They have been working on these things for years and years and years to get to the place where their writing is at. So this book serves to define those things and help you figure out how to employ those things. But that does not mean that you should be able to immediately then go to your next story or a story that's in progress and put all this stuff in. (laughs) That's overwhelming. It's completely overwhelming. So no, don't freak out. Please don't freak out. The examples uh, throughout the book are from Masters of the craft. And it's going to take a minute to get there.
1: <laughs> and then and I think it was right after that, that again, you added a practical tip, which I love. And it was just talk about building a word list that you can go back to, like talk, talk oh, uh-huh. about like, how you would build that word list and how it would be helpful.
0: Yeah. So I, I think the one that you're talking about is like to figure out what particular moods that you want to use for your the various scenes in your book. Um. Sometimes that can become very difficult. Like you don't know where to go next. Like, oh, gosh, I just had a happy one and, and I had a, a scared one. Uh, I don't know what, to, what else is there. It, it helps beforehand if you're, if you're an outliner, especially, and not so much if you're a pantser, but pantsers, I do think that you should do some outlining. <laughs> uh, it helps to be beforehand come up with like a group of words that encompass various moods that you want to incorporate in your story, even if you're not assigning them to specific scenes, because that's how hardcore you've outlined. You can create a list that will allow you to reference it. when you come to a point where you're just stumped, you know, like, I don't know. I don't know. What, what's my emotional goal of this scene? Do, how do I want readers to feel here? I'm not sure. I, I, I know I shouldn't repeat beats over and over and over again. So is it okay if I repeat the last beat and just do that again? Or, or what should I do next? So if you create your list, you can just go to it. Say, what mood can I use? What would work here? And um, for a, example, I think this is the example that I used in the book. If you want, <laughs> here we go again with the scary and the horror. Mm-hmm. <laughs> As you can tell, like I like horror. Uh, my my first book, it's my it's a trunk novel at this point, but it was a zombie apocalypse book. I will finish it at some point. Mm-hmm. So a list of. Horror, or scary words, creepy, uneasy type of words that can describe moods that fit that emotion are like what uh, shadow, uh, flicker, candlelight. And these things will sort of help hone in where you're going with your mood. What's a mood that could fit with with uh, with creak, tense, scary, terrified, panicked? Those are all. Uh, Simple. I mean, they're low hanging fruit, I I admit, but that those are all things that you can just put down, even like the low hanging fruit. Sometimes it's just difficult to think of in the moment. And the last thing that you want to do is stall your writing out when you're in the zone. So if you can just like flick over to another doc real quick, check out your list. Go. Oh, that's what I want. Take that word put it up on the screen for yourself and just like look at it and be like, okay, that's where I'm going. It gives you a focus.
1: Exactly. It sounded like a cheat sheet, you know, that you can yeah. just grab when you're stuck and, and just yeah. help you move forward quickly with the, the pre-planned mood that you are hoping to achieve.
0: Right. And it even helps to come up with a, uh, like dual columns. Like you'll have a word, uh, like skitter and then you, you have it matched with, uh, an emotion. And so you just go, okay, what would that this word I just used. This word, where is it? Here it is. And you look over at your at your column, and it goes, "Oh, it evokes this mood. That's the mood that I could go for." So you can you can improve upon that list if you want to make it a little bit more elaborate. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, that's a list that you can take with you for all your your writing. Once you've created it, it's there. It's a tool now. <laughs>
1: Right. And another thing is the book isn't overwhelming with exercises that you can do, but there are a few little exercises that, that seem really helpful. Another one that I really, um, thought sounded like fun was bummer Bob versus Julie joy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. okay. <laughs> yeah, So I, I, that one is about, um, that's about writing a scene from various perspectives. Uh, so, if you were thinking about a character walking through uh, a dappled deer meadow, what if your character, Julie Joy, was the, the the POV of that scene and she was walking through it? Exactly how would she perceive and interact with that setting? What kinds of things would she do in that setting? How it, would it um, affect her goals, whatever you know, she's going through the setting for? as compared to Barbara Bob. What if Barbara Bob was walking through that same setting? He'd probably see it in a much different light than Julie. So this is an exercise that I think not, not only it doesn't necessarily have to be something that um, helps you create a finished scene for your work. This scene, I felt like I was writing that this exercise was geared towards helping create uh, the ability to write differences in your mood and atmosphere based on your character so based on their personality um, and their actions and uh, the way that the story is feeling in that moment, you can have a completely different experience of that story based on your characters. And that, I think that's really important. And it also will help choose who the most appropriate viewpoint character for any individual scene is going to be. So you don't have to necessarily do the exercise um, for every time that you're trying to choose a viewpoint character. But I do recommend trying the exercise out a couple of times. It doesn't have to be long. They can just literally, they could be a paragraph. Uh, going through it in your mind will help you discover the best character for this particular scene.
1: Yeah. That's what I really liked. It seemed quick and easy, but like also very helpful. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I love this book. So Mood and Atmosphere and World Building, which I'm hoping to read soon. How can people get them?
0: So I just finished the Kickstarter for these guys. Um, probably I'm going to be safe and say by Christmas.
1: Yeah. So, so if means- someone if someone has didn't get in on the Kickstarter, it's going to be a few months before they can get these books. So they should probably just uh, what follow you on social media or sign up for your newsletter to be alerted when they become available.
0: Yeah, I, I am always accessible on Facebook. Um, but the uh, the book world building um, will actually be in a book bundle next month in October. Ah. So that'll be available there. And as soon as um, my backers have the book, I'll start selling it on my website. And that's probably going to be the first place that – well, I guess both of the books. Uh, my website is probably going to be the only place where the, the special edition Kickstarter printing is going to be available, though. So when it goes wide, uh, every subject will be a different book.
1: Okay, super. And what's your website address?
0: Website is joshuaso.com. E S O E. Super easy. Yep, that's
1: right. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Joshua, for sharing your your knowledge with us today and through with to the world, through your books. Um, it's been great to talk with you.
0: Thanks, Mignola. It was really good to talk to you as well.
1: For those of you who are interested, the book bundle Joshua mentions is at storybundle.com. It's a place you can buy a group of books that usually have a specific theme. And the National Novel Writing Month bundle with Joshua's book World Building will have a mix of writing, business, script writing, and TV writing books. And it'll run from September 29th through the end of November. Again, that's at storybundle.com. Grammar Girl is a Quick and Dirty Tips podcast, thanks to my editor, Adam Cecil, and my audio engineer, Nathan Sams. Our ad operations specialist is Morgan Christensen, our digital operations specialist is Holly Hutchings, and our marketing and publicity assistant is Davina Tomlin, who isn't sure if they believe in ghosts, but is sure that if ghosts exist, they should be left alone. (laughs) Amen. And I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl. That's all. Thanks for listening.
0: Walmart Plus members save on Meeting Up With Friends.